Thursday, September 4th, 2014. This is the Hermetic Hour. I am your host, Polk Runyon. And tonight we present a discussion on Shamgar, son of the Canaanite war goddess Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and saved Israel. Over a hundred years before Samson, and became a judge, ruler of all the tribes of Israel. Shamgar's story is briefly told in the biblical book of Judges. Beyond that lies the realm of myth and legend in which it is suggested that Shamgar was a Phoenician pirate called Tekeleth the purple dragon, based in Tyre and sent by King Abimilke to aid the Israelites against the Philistines. He joins the host of the Hebrew judge Ahud and marries his daughter Jael, who eventually tries to kill him. His ox goad is said to have been a magical weapon forged by the blacksmith Tubal Cain. The legend is said to have been perpetuated in the Gnostic Christian tradition of Marcus, from whom we get the Greek Kabbalah. Shamgar's exploits should be considered symbolic rather than historic, like the story of Hiram Abiff in masonry or the labors of Hercules in Phoenician and Greek astrological lore. So, if you want to return to the days when gods and giants walked the earth, tune in and we'll evoke the shade of Shamgar. Now, I think in order to really appreciate this, this whole Shamgar episode, that what we should do is use our fascinating Hindu time machine otherwise known as a shorty box, and we will actually tune this up to the right vibration, and we'll go back to the year 1240 B.C., somewhere off the coast of Avalon, I mean, I'm of Pascal, not Avalon, of Ascalon on the Philistine coast, about 40 miles out to sea, and we will pick up Shamgar, if we can get the time machine tuned up. Uh, let's see. All right, well, we'll see if we can do this. We're going to go back here. Going back. Going back. Going back. Yeah, we're going back. Going around and around, counter the sun. Around and around, back and back, back and back, back and back. 1240 BC. Ah. Uh, we're just about there. Uh, we're coming down. We're coming down. Into the, oh, there's a storm down there. Oh, yes. All right. Now we have, we have returned. There's a big storm brewing out 
in the waters, and, and the sea is running high. And uh, I will pick up uh, see mountainous swells of dark water with a stiff breeze blowing. On a Sidonian merchant ship, the captain scans the shifting horizon. As the waves subside, he sees a ship bearing down on them, a great two-masted war galley with purple sails. Shall we fight, the sailor asks. Fight the purple dragon? Are you mad? On board the war galley, Shangar calls to his helmsman. We will tie onto their stern. The helmsman disagrees. Our ram will foul our rudder. Well, boarding amidships in this sea will sink us both, Shamgar says. He calls to the ballista crew. Shoot me a line to their mainmast. I'm going aboard. The purple-bearded giant grabs a trundle block and swings out over the angry sea to land on the pitching deck of the Sidonian merchantman. A beautiful girl, wearing only a cloak and jewelry, stands by the terrified Sidonian captain. She gazes wide-eyed at Shamgar. You are the purple dragon, she asks. The very same, and you? Princess Europa of God. Well, what are you doing here? My father sends me to marry the king of Cyprus. Do you want to? Oh, I have to. What if I change her plans? She smiles. My father would be furious. I'll put your arms around me and hold tight. She runs to him and throws her arms around his neck. He leaps up and grabs the swinging trundle box, and when the ship goes up on a swell, he and the princess swing back aboard his war galley. The Sidonian ship slides down in a trough while the war galley rides up on a crest, coming down to rip the Sidonian's hull with its great bronze ram. The heavy-laden merchantman sinks in minutes, going down with all hands. The galley slaves, chained to their benches, drown at their oars. Shamgar's hard face twists in pain as he watches them go down. On the war galley, Princess Europa clings to Shamgar. Take me, my lord, me now. In front of the crew? Yes, love is best when it is witnessed. Shamgar shakes his head, not on a war galley at sea. She stamps her foot. You insult me. Oh, I'll make up for it. Then to his first officer, take her below. On their voyage back to Tyre, Shamgar's own port, Europa tells Shamgar that she is descended from legendary King Minos. She is a bull dancer in her Philistine city of Goth. Bull dancing is a religious rite that the Philistines brought from their original home in Crete. And each year at their summer solstice festival, the youths dance with the bulls until one of them is gored, and the king chops the wounded dancer's head off with his sacred double axe. Well, how long have you been leaping over bulls, Shungar asks? Well, since my first moon, ten years, I think. You tempt the gods, lady. Well, I always go first. It is the weary ones who die. And later, Europa finds Shamgar reading a papyrus scroll in his cabin. She looks down at the demotic Egyptian script. The purple dragon reads Inkanaten, but you are a great warrior. Never put your trust in a warrior who loves war. My greatest warriors are those who try to avoid it. What does the lion lie down with the lamb? My mother was the war goddess Anath, and my father was the dragon of chaos. I seek to temper my ferocious heredity. 
Well, do you, do you believe there's only one God? John Gore nods. Yes, but it is never wise to say so. You are a strange man. That is the meaning of my name. I love you, my Lord Shamgar, she whispers. To landward, the glowing green pillar of the goddess, standing before the high temple of Milkart, the Phoenician Hercules, shines like a beacon, leading them into the sheltered harbor at Tyre. In a conference chamber of the counting house, Shamgar sits across the table from Abbey Milky, the elected king of Tyre, who says, well, the king of God wants his daughter back, and he wants your head in a jar. Well, she was on a Sidonian ship. Does not matter to the Philistines. Well, I could disappear. You will have to. I will take an executed criminal's head dye his beard purple and seal it up in a jar. She can take it with her. Shamgar frowns. I'm afraid that won't work. Why not? Well, she will open the jar. She loves me. Abby Milky glowers at Shamgar for a long moment. Well, then you'd better convince her not to open that jar, because I have another task for you, and I do not want the Philistines to know that you are still alive. I will do my best, Shamgar says. In the apartment provided for her entire, Europa gazes up at Shamgar with tear-filled eyes. I will keep your secret only on one condition, my love, which is that you love me every moment until my people come to take me home, that you pleasure me with all your strength and give me your seed again and again so that I may carry your life within me. Shamgar kisses her tenderly. I promise, he whispers, but no onlook. No onlookers, please. A five-day and night sleepless marathon of love-making, wine-drinking, feasting, and creative debauchery leaves both Shamgar and Europa exhausted, sprawled naked in the cushions of their love nest. Abby Milky shakes Shamgar and holds the severed head close to his face. The purple dragon wakes and stares bleary-eyed at the purple-bearded head. <clears throat> that does not look like me. But it does look like how I feel. The Philistines arrived. You had better kiss her goodbye and get out of here, Happy Milky says. Shamgar shakes her, but she only moans. He kisses her bare shoulder and staggers off toward the bath. That night, Abby, Milky, and Shamgar sit together in a private apartment illuminated by torchlight. Both wear hooded cloaks and speak in low voices. Abby, Milky explains Shamgar's secret mission. I've decided to send you to the Hebrew judge Kahud on his request. He rules over the Benjaminites and the tribe of Judah. Yeah, and a priesthood they call the Levites, and they surround Jerusalem, but they do not control it. And who wants military assistance to fight off the Philistines, especially the Philistines of God? They have confiscated the Hebrews' grain harvest. The Israelites are facing starvation. 
The Philistine Confederation and has formed an alliance with Sidon. Now, your recent romantic adventure contributed to that evil. And now that the Egyptians have withdrawn, we do not want the Philistines extending their influence over the inland tribes. So I'm sending you as a confidential military advisor to such a mood. Shamgar asked, well, are these Hebrews capable of fighting against the Philistine army? Oh, they have a mysterious weapon, a golden box they brought out of Egypt, and they say their invisible god lives in it. Uh, they carry it before them in battle, and it kills people. Well, then, why do they need our help? Well, let me introduce you to Mahud's messenger. The Phoenician king gets up, takes a torch from a sconce and pulls back a curtain. A torch illuminates the disfigured face of a madman. He cackles with insane laughter. <laughs> Shelter, son of an ass, the purple dragon. Oh, this is Bezek, your parasites. He survived the holy fire of their ark and became their prophets, Abimoki explains. But not before they cut off my thumbs, and they cut off my big toes, and then they cut off my foreskin. Does this arc really kill people, Shangar asked Bisek. Suddenly the madman becomes quite sane. Only if it stands in the bright sunlight at night, and then on 30 days it's just a box. And the Philistines know this. Well, it might still be useful, Shangar says, but uh, you're going to need other weapons. Abby Milky puts an iron spear point and an iron sword blade on the table. Kiss right iron. We'll land you through our chopper, you and Bezek, who lead a caravan inland, uh, carrying 1,000 of each of these. We're making these zebras a force to be reckoned with, Shamgar observes. Yes. And you will stay with them to make sure that they do not misuse these weapons after the Philistines are vanquished. They would take Jerusalem? Abby Milky nods. Now, who has declared that his Hebrews will make the temple of Melchizedek in Jerusalem a house for their one god in his box? No other gods allowed. If they succeed, it'll start a series of wars that'll go on endlessly. That's the same mistake Inconotin made, Shungar says. Abby Milky nods again. I see that it does not happen. Well, what do you think about that, Bezek? Shungar asks the prophet. Bezek rolls his eyes. There is only one God, father, mother, son, and daughter, all are one. Shungar nods approvingly. Yes, the one God has four faces. But what do you personally gain from this? I prophesied that Goth would be destroyed. I have a reputation to uphold. Shamgar turns to Happy Milk. Now, what do I get out of this? Oh, son of the Hood's daughter is slim of waist and broad of hip. Her breasts are full moons in summer, and her eyes are like deep pools in the gardens of paradise. Shamgar nods reflectively. And dye that beard of yours black, Abby Milky says. Only a Hood and his family should know who you really are. The scene changes. 
a rocky wilderness near near Gezer on the road to Jerusalem. Shamgar, his beard now black and dressed like a traveling merchant, plods along with the hobbling Bigtolus Bezek, leading a long string of heavily laden donkeys. He approaches a Philistine guard post blocking the road. What have we here? An officer asks. Salt, Shamgar declares. A soldier raises the lid of a yoked hamper, tastes the salt, and says, It is salt. If it is salt, you're going the wrong way, the officer says. It is sea salt. Some people prefer it, Shamgar says. Are you Hebrews? Bezek shows his thumbless palms. Hebrews? Look what they did to me. And then to Shamgar. And you? Oh, I need to relieve myself. Would you like to watch? You're smuggling something? I know it, the officer says. Dump it all out. Wait. Excellency, Shamgar exclaims. I confess, we are smugglers. The officer cracks a sly smile. Yeah, what are you smuggling? Shamgar leans close close and whispers, Donkeys. As he offers two silver shekels, the Philistine officer continues to frown at him until Shamgar counts out the right number of coins. Then the officer smiles, takes the bribe, and says, Pass on. By sundown, they approach the Hebrew camp of Jejahud. The camp guard challenges them. Hold, strangers, declare yourselves. We're travelers from west to east, Bezek calls out. What do you seek? One true God, Bezek answers. Proceed in peace, the guard replies. As they make their way through the camp, Shamgar praises the Israelites. Well, they're all clean, everything is in order, the children all seem healthy and happy, and the women are even smiling. I do not think we can attribute all of this to circumcision alone, Bezek answers. They obey the laws of God, and they deal fairly with each other, but they are too proud to be exclusive, and they make their righteousness a fault. Otherwise, they would be perfect. Well, righteousness is a fault the inland inland Canaanites could use more of. Well, coming from a notorious Canaanite woman, I hear that is a remarkable statement. Shamgar gives Bezek a sardonic smile. I remind you that in our philosophy, sin is merely a lunar god. Shamgar and Bezek enter Judge Ahud's spacious tent. The leader of the Hebrews rises to greet them. Welcome, stranger. My humble abode is yours. Will you honor me with your hospitality, Lord Ahud? Shamgar bows slightly. I need not bow. There are no lords here, my friend. We are all free men under God's law, Shamgar replies. Then I am the more honored. Of course, I know who you are. But how do you wish to be called among us? Well, call me Barzell, it seems appropriate. Man of iron, indeed it is. A strikingly beautiful girl enters and smiles modestly at Shamgar. My daughter, Jael, Ode says. And to her, this is Barzell, our friend from Tyre. Is your heart of iron as well, she asks. Even a heart of iron would melt in the radiance of your beauty, my lady. She blushes and lowers her gaze with a secret smile. Would you bring us wine and sweetmeats, my dear? Barzell and I have weighty matters to discuss. Ahud turns to Bezek. Good evening to you, venerable Weighty matters you would hide from God, Bezek says. Sometimes you and I hear the voice of God differently. 
Good night, venerable. Ahud and Shamgar have finished the jug of wine between them, and they have moved their conversation to philosophical issues. Melchizedek, blessed our father Abraham, his temple belongs to the God of Israel and to him alone. Well, but Melchizedek was a priest of El, the most high God of all the Canaanites and the, and the Hebrews. And if you remove El from his temple, you will be constantly at war for the next thousand years. God promised us this land, and we shall make it ours, and his. Well, your friends in Tyre are worried about that. In exchange for helping you against the Philistines, they would like you to be more accommodating to the customs and beliefs of your neighbors. Our neighbors, Canaanites. Well, I'm a Canaanite. Now you're a Phoenician. A Phoenician is a Canaanite who lives on the coast. What gods do you worship? I am of the Raphaim. My mother was the war goddess of Noth, and my father was said to have been the dragon of chaos, whom you call Leviathan. But the only gods I worship are Father El and Mother Asherat, and their images stand in the center of that temple in Jerusalem. Ahud is smoldering. Raphaim, fallen angels, watchers, giants. I kill one of your great kings with my own hand. Shamgar smiles. Well, he was not a great king. He was a fat king. And you sneaked into his privy, and you stabbed him in the belly while he was sitting on the potty. Now, that's a good strategy, but hardly an act of valor. Ahud holds a brooding stare for a long moment and bursts into a hearty laughter. <laughs> I like you already, he says. Shamgar is still smiling. I thought you would. Now, tomorrow I'd like to inspect that holy ark of yours. It might be useful. Ahud's face darkens. Have a care, Canaanite. I do not like you that much. Bezek sticks his head in the tent flap and says, Shamgar, they went to unload the weapons and there was nothing but rocks under those bags of salt. Ahud gets to his feet. His hand clutches the dagger in his sash. Go to the tent we have provided you and be gone by morning. On his way out, Shamgar encounters Jael in conversation with a black-robed, dark-faced desert chieftain. The Bedouin gives Shamgar an angry look and spits at him. Oh, please, Lord Heber, this is our friend Barzell from Tyre, Jael intercedes. I know who he is, and I know what he is, and I spit upon the horror of mother him. If you knew who mothered me, you would loose your bowels and wet yourself, Shamgar replies, and turns his back on Lord Heber. In his borrowed tent, the purple dragon is packing his meager belongings. Jail enters and comes to him. Please, Shongar, do not abandon us. You must save us from the Philistines. Well, that's what I believe my king and your father wanted me to do, and obviously neither my king or your judge wants me to save you, so I'm going. Well, perhaps the Philistines stole the weapons. No, there never were any weapons. I know that now. She moves to him with tear-filled eyes and grips his shoulders. Please, Shankar, you're the only hope we have. Well, your father wants me to put that golden box of yours in the Temple of Jerusalem. That'll touch off a string of wars and it'll go on forever. I want no part of it. I'm going. Believe in one God, a just and merciful God over all and everything. Yes, but not the way your father does. But you do not understand... After Joshua the Conqueror died, we, we tried to accommodate your gods, and, and we lost one tribe after another because your great El only 
presides over the lustful and ruthless gods and goddesses your people worship. He does not rule them. And now we have only two tribes left to keep the faith. And if we if we make the temple of Jerusalem ours, we can win back the lost tribes of Israel, and Moses' great vision will survive, and someday we can share our covenant with all humankind, but, but, but now we have to restore and preserve it. And this is what my father was trying to explain to you. Well, you're right about Father El and Mother Asherah. They, they only preside. They, they do not rule, and Thus, we have perversions like the Malpior cult and venereal disease and petty tyrants and injustice and far too much human sacrifice. Her eyes are wet with tears of joy. You do understand. Shamgar turns and holds her shoulders. Does this come from your heart or is it your father speaking? It comes from my heart and God lives in my heart. Is there room in your heart for me? Yes, if you will join us and save Israel. Shamgar takes her in his arms. I must consult with my own divine lights, he tells her. Your heavenly father? No, my hellish mother. And do not marry anyone until I return. I promise, she says, and seals her vow with a kiss. And high on a barren hilltop, Shamgar stands before a heap of stones he has erected as an altar. He raises his hand skyward as the pungent smoke from a roasting calf rises to the clouds. Enough, my mother, I bring you meat and fat and blood, great goddess of war, hear me. The empty hills echo with his shout. Shamgar becomes aware of a presence behind him. He turns to confront his mother, Anath, the goddess of war. She is a tall, strong woman in black iron armor with a blood-red cape. She wears a necklace of shrunken heads and a purple made from weathered human hands, and her eyes have a fearsome glow, and her voice resonates like a swarm of locusts. I have not heard from you in years, my son. Why do you call upon me now? I need your help. To fight for that overblown of search of Yes, and his people. Against Dagon and his people. Shamgar nods. Not that I favor Jehovah, but the battle would be entertaining. There's been too much peace of late. I must do this alone. I need a weapon. That is for Kusar, the craftsman, to provide. He will forge the weapon for you and teach you its use. But give no heed to anything else he may tell you. Where do I find him? Well, that has been arranged. Thank you, Mother. I am in your debt. Anath smiles thinly as she points to her necklace and her girdle. One of these heads and two of these hands will be yours someday. Make me proud to wear them and your debt is paid. Shamgar descends to find Bezek, sitting on a boulder at the bottom of the hill. Come on, we have to meet old Tubal Cain before dark. Tubal Cain? You Canaanites call him Kusor the Craftsman. Shamgar frowns. You know too much, old man. I know just enough. Now let's be going. Daylight wanes. The dying rays of the sun illuminate the entrance to a deep cavern inside the cave. Bezek lights torches. He and Shamgar proceed downward into the bowels of the earth toward a faint sound of hammering from far below. 
Finally, they come to the subterranean workshop of Kusori, the craftsman god. Bezek waits outside while Shamgar enters. The burly blacksmith looks up from his forge. With his bare hand, he takes the red glowing iron weapon out of the bed of coals and plunges it into the quenching bath. A hissing cloud of steam rises. He holds up a long pointed iron spike with a sharp hook curving backward. Yeah, it looks like an ox goad, but it's much more than that. Why an ox goad, Shamgar asks. So you can sneak into Goth disguised as a drover of oxen. Good idea. Good ideas are my stock and trade, Kusor says, as he fits the goad onto a jewel-encrusted golden shaft. All the planetary jewels, including the sun, you will keep this power source covered with leather until you need it. And I have something else for you, he says. Come over here. Shamgar follows Kusor to a standing figure of Shapshish, the sun goddess. Kusor takes a gold medallion from around the idol's neck. The piece is three inches in diameter with a crystal set in the center. This is the eye of Resh. It harnesses the power of the sun. To empower the ox code? Well, the ox code has its own empowering jewels. The eye of Resh serves another purpose. Shamgar gives him a questioning look. To destroy the city of God. Shamgar takes the medallion. My mother said you would teach me the use of these weapons, but that I should heed nothing else you might tell me. What did she mean by that? The big blacksmith cracks a slower smile. She's afraid I'll tell you who your father really is. Well, my father was not Votan, the dragon of chaos? Kustora laughs. Did she actually believe that? Well, why would she lie to me? Because she was afraid gods and men would learn the truth. Shamgar becomes angry. Who is my father, he demands to know. Who sort of matches his tongue? If I tell you, you must swear to keep the secret to yourself alone on pain of death, should you break your oath. Shamgar spits in his palm and clasps hands with Kusor. I do so swear. Now, who is my father? I. When Shamgar recovers from the shock, he asks, well, well, why should that be such a secret? Because neither gods nor men would ever sanction a union between the goddess of war and the god of industry. Together, your mother and I can destroy the world. Well, why would you want to? Because we are what we are. Well, then why are we helping Jehovah? Because he enjoys war as much as we do. Now remember, you are never to reveal our secret. Well, you need not worry. I would be ashamed to. From the dusty road outside the walled city of Goth, Shamgar and Bisak heard their slowly moving oxen through the open doors of the massive barbican. And as they passed through the gate, the gate was two guards make way for them, while the magistrate counts their livestock and gives them a ticket and waves them on toward the marketplace. So far, so good, Shamgar mutters. Now, inside the walls, they have a better view of the city. The tallest building is a great stone tower, 15 cubits high with no windows. However, it does have a scaffolding that reaches the top. The granary, P6 says, that's where they store all the grain they confiscated from our harvest. Next to the greenery is the palace in Minoan style, with a temple and the amphitheater adjacent. The marketplace fronts the main gate. The houses are backed up against the city walls. Well, we'll sell the oxen and then lay low until after nightfall, Shamgar says. 
a crescent moon rides high in the dark sky. How Shongar climbs the rickety scaffolding to the roof of the granary. And once on the wood plank roof, he selects a center point and uses his ox coat to drill a hole. He fits the eye of Rash over the hole and covers the golden vessel with a handful of leaving only the crystal exposed. But halfway down the rotten scaffolding gives way and he falls a dozen feet to the ground below where he lies unconscious. He wakes the next morning with a splitting headache to find himself chained, spread eagle to a massive oaken door inside the private apartment of Princess Europa. She wipes his forehead with rose water and kisses him tenderly on the lips. Shankar, my lost love, at last you've come back to me. Shamgar struggles with his chains. Does anyone else know who I am? No, no, my love. You are my secret guest. Secret prisoner. Now loose these chains. She gives him a coy smile. I am carrying our child, my love. Three months since my last moon. She opens her gown and stands naked before him. Am I not more voluptuous? You still love me, do you not? Shamgar seethes with frustration. Yes, you're beautiful, and I love you, but we have to leave this city. We have to leave now, before high noon, or we will die. Now loose these chains. Oh, Shamgar, I want you to stay with me. When I tell my father I'm carrying your child, he will forgive you and make you a prince. That does not matter. He looks out the window toward the sun. In less than an hour, the city will be destroyed. Oh, you're just saying that because you want to leave me again. No, I want to take you with me. She turns her back to him and walks to the wide window overlooking the amphitheater where people are already cheering the bull dancers. I will place your beautiful jeweled ox goat here in the windowsill. See how it sparkles in the sunlight? Trumpets sound from below. Now they call me to leap the sacred bull. My father and the people expect it of me. You may watch me from the window. She blows him a kiss and hurries out of the apartment. Shamgar growls as he struggles with his chains, naked and glistening with oil. Her long brown hair blowing free, Princess Europa enters the arena. At the sight of her, the crowd cheers. Flowers fall all around her as she gracefully dances toward the huge white bull with long, sharp, pointed horns. The bull snorts and paws the earth with his hooves. In the royal box, her father, the king, sits amid his courtiers, looking down on his daughter with pride. High above them, the sun climbs toward high noon. In Europa's apartment, Shungar prays to Anath, Mother, help me! Help me save her and my child! Anath's resonant voice replies, I am not a goddess of mercy. I will save you alone. The ox goad shimmers with a blinding light. Shamgar's chains fall away. He races to the windowsill. He grabs the sparkling weapon and leaps from the window down into the shrubbery outside the arena's wall. In the arena, Europa runs toward the bull. Above the granary, the sun has reached mid-heaven. On the roof of the tower, the eye of rest begins to flash with concentrated sunlight, and inside the tower, the bright beam lances down for a haze of green dust. In the arena, 
Europa leaps a split second too soon. The bull tosses his head and catches her in midair with his horn. He tosses her like a broken doll to fall in the sand where she lies writhing in agony. The crowd is horrified and moans in unison. The king stares wide-eyed and open-mouthed. Shangar leaps down into the arena and runs toward her. Her father, the king, takes up his sacred bronze double axe and quickly descends from the royal box. Both men stand staring at each other from opposite sides of the dying woman on the ground between them. Neither speaks. Finally, Europa gasps, Please, father. The king chops his daughter's head off. Both Shangar and her father fall to their knees and weep. There is a flash brighter than the sun, a clap of thunder, the earth shakes, and everything vanishes in a cloud of dust and debris as the greenery tower explodes. Two miles beyond the still smoking ruins of Goth on the road to Jerusalem, Shamgar and Bezek trudge along on foot. Shamgar broods in silence. Something glimmers in a bush by the roadside. Shamgar stops to pick it out of the foliage. It is the eye of Resh. That is an omen, Bezek says. Not a good one. I hope we never have to do anything like that again. They were Philistines. They were people, Shankar says. Well, I hope the other Philistines did not find out what we did. Shankar's expression is even darker. Oh, they will. You can be sure of that. Why? Well, because you are a Hebrew prophet, and you prophesied that God would be destroyed. Upon returning to the Hebrew camp, Shamgar hears a woman scream, and he, he enters Ahud's tent to find Heber the Kenite trying to rape Ahud's daughter's ale. Shamgar seizes Huber and hooks his ox goat into the Bedouin's neck, ready to tear his head off. No, please, Shamgar, do not kill him. My father promised me to him. Disgusted, Shamgar releases Heber and punches him in the nose. Leave this camp and do not return. If I see you again, I will kill you, he says. Heber slinks out of the tent, giving them a look of murderous hatred. Why did you not tell me of this, Shangar asks you? I was so ashamed. I was hoping you would vanquish the Philistines so we could renegotiate my betrothal. Well, the Philistines are vanquished, and I have just renegotiated your betrothal. Now I will have a talk with your father. Shamgar confronts Ahud on the matter. You approved of that behavior of his? Oh, of course not. But I should have known after all he is a Canaanite. I am also a Canaanite, and my manners are much better. Now that Hebrew is no longer a contender, I petition you for Jehu's hand in marriage. Uh, she's dedicated to serve God in ways you may not understand. Well, I understand you have some unusual hold over her. She despised Heber, but she was willing to marry him for your sake. No. She would have married him to serve God. Told Bezek, God speaks to you in different ways. God has a special hold over Jael. She may wish to have you circumcised. Well, was Heber going to have himself circumcised? The hood frowns darkly. Well, she had no choice in that matter. Shamgar nods. 
I will accept her as she is, and I will comply with her wishes. Jail comes out from behind the curtain and rushes into Shamgar's arms. Oh, Shamgar, I love you. You have made me the happiest woman on earth. They hold their embrace until Bezek enters the tent. His face is ashen. You were right, Shamgar. My prophecy has done us in. The Philistines are marching on us with a mighty army, and they will be upon us in two days. Shamgar pauses to uh, contemplate the news, and then he turns to who? You and I are going to have to come to another understanding. On the plane of battle, the small, poorly armed Hebrew contingent, which can hardly be called an army, stands in a ragged line holding a front across a broad, dry wash between rocky hills. It is a good position to stand off a frontal attack by infantry. They can be funneled in and kept off the flanks. The Philistines cannot use their chariots because the plane is strewn with rocks. The Hebrews have one more advantage. The sun is behind them. Shangar stands just behind the first rank with Bisek and Ahuth. Behind them is a deep pit from which long, long rope bridles extend to teams of oxen with their drivers waiting on either side. 400 yards away, the sound of trumpets and the beat of huge kettle drums. The bronze and iron-armored Philistine army, 5,000 strong, begins to move forward like a giant glistening centipede. Shamgar, holding his ox goad and an oxide shield, strides out in front of the Hebrew line and stands alone, waiting. The Philistines halt their march within shouting distance of the Hebrew line. I am Shamgar, the destroyer of Gath. Send out your champion, Shamgar calls. The army whose champion dies will quit the field. In answer, the Philistine archers loose a flight of arrows at him. Shamgar catches four of them on his shield. The rest hit the earth behind him. Still, he stands his ground as the Philistine pikemen advance. And just as the phalanx of spear points are about to reach him, there is a rumbling behind the Hebrew line. Something very bright and dazzling is rising out of a deep pit being hoisted by the oxen. The midday sun shines down upon the Ark of the Covenant. The Hebrew warriors fall on their knees and hide their faces. The Ark has a nimbus of fire around it. Lightning crackles between the wingtips of the cherubim. Then, with a crack of thunder, lightning snakes out like a giant glowing blue spider to dance over the ranks of the Philistines, killing them by the hundreds while the rest flee in panic. All the while, Shamgar stands with his ox goat held high. Like a lightning rod, the power running through him, his hair standing on end, laughing with the booming voice of a god. I am Shangar, champion of Israel. But there is no celebration for the returning hero and his warriors. The Hebrew camp has been invaded, and Jael, Shangar's bride-to-be, has been abducted by Hebert and his desert raiders. To be continued. Okay. Uh, that's the story of Shamgar, and we will return my gavel. We've returned to present time. And who have I got on the line? Hey, focus, uh, Ryder Solomon, Michael. Oh, it's Ryder Solomon. Uh, and good. Now, now you're you're there, and I wonder if we are, are we going to get uh, Frater Opus. Uh, Frater Opus, are you also on the line? 
Uh, Frater Rufus hasn't called in yet, so he will. Uh, okay. So, Frater, okay, Frater Solomon, uh, you're uh, that uh, you. Let's have your uh, your comments on the on the uh, grammatic version here. Well, I mean, this is this is just a wonderful elaboration of an old buried myth. So, um, you know, it's it's really neat. You got your uh, you know stories like this. They start out in, in your their uh, original uh, Phoenician or, or biblical Hebrew, and then they go through their uh, Greek or Greek and Coptic recensions. But um, hey, this is this is really because we've got modern pulp fiction uh, writer Polk Runyon who, who really just uh, you really just bring to life something that um, can't be it can't be told it couldn't be told in the way that we tell stories now. So um, we've really uh, we, we really see Shamgar come to life in a way that's really beautiful where you get all that, uh, you get that gore and you get that fun, but you also, um, you get a glimpse into the past of who Shamgar was. He's kind of this um, forgotten uh, judge of Israel who's not really an Israelite, and we know that because he's the only judge who isn't given a tribe. So we know he's not part of the 12 tribe tribe federation. So he has to be, uh, he has to have some sort of Canaanite origin because that's really the only other origin that he could have. So, um, but any anywhere else you want me to go, just kind of ask me, and uh, I'll give information on that. But it's really neat because we really get to peer into what historically was going on. We know Shamgar um, served under uh, King Ehud. Yeah, he was pretty much a king. He, um, a judge Ehud. They were called uh, judges back then, but they were really kind of kind of low level kings. Um, they had looser federations of other tribes, and, and the biggest tribe that would have been loyal to Ehud would have been. Um, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, because they were all really close yeah. to each other. They had a, a loose alliance. Okay. This, uh, alliance of uh, 12 tribes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Settlement, uh, I think Frater Opus is, uh, is calling in. Uh, Frater Opus, are you there? Uh, yeah, I have arrived. Thank you, Pope. Oh, good. Good. Uh, okay, Frater Opus is on, too. Now, uh, you did you uh, did you hear the whole uh, the the whole dramatic uh, version of Shamgar? Yes, yes, I did. This is an amazing piece of world building. Well, I, I think amazing. you know we we, we used we used uh, just about everything in the Book of Judges rolled it into this. The Book of Judges, except of course Gideon and and uh, and Samson, which was very popular, and they've been done. But but everything else we used except the one thing I left out was that horrible business of the of the Benjaminites and the and the Levite and the concubine. I left that one out, and I think that probably probably uh, uh, it was a good idea to leave that one out. <laughs> but everything else, I think everything else we got worked in there. Uh, so so, Frater uh, Opus, would you uh, like to comment on on our mythological uh, reconstruction here? Well, yeah, I, um, I think you, you clearly you brought in a lot of stuff um, because I mean, what's actually in the Book of Judges about Shamgar is just like a hint. It's like one verse. No, it's two. Uh, it's it's it, over. Oh, no, wait a minute. Wait, 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 let me correct you on that. Over in is this is important. Over in the Song of Deborah. Over in the Song of Deborah, Deborah says. In the days of Shamgar and Jael, and that's how we justify Jael being Shamgar's wife. 
So there's ah, two okay. mentions. Yeah, yeah, right. I just want to make that, make that clear that, because that's important because we, well, Jael was supposedly, according to the judges, married to Heber. And we had, so we, we, we you know, we, we got, we got that straightened out. And, and, uh, um, so, yeah, so there's those two mentions, and Josephus just mentions uh, Sambra very briefly. But, but let's look, look at it this way. We have just we have actually more on Shamgar than than the Masons have on Hiram in the Bible on Hiram Abib. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I tell you one th- one yeah. thing I noticed right o- one thing I noticed right away, Father That Beyond, was um, I, I, I looked I looked at your description and I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What is this about the Phoenician hero armed with an ox goad? Why an ox goad? Well let's see. That's the uh that's the original meaning of the letter Lamed. Yep. Right? Hmm. So I got busy remembering uh let's see, okay. Lamed on our tree of life, that's between uh okay, that's between uh Gabura and Tiferoth and uh associated with justice and balance. That is the sign of Libra. Oh well then. Hey, this is actually making a lot of sense. <laughs> Isn't it though? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, I was, well, I was thank, looking... you for, thank you for bringing that out. I, I tried to work as much symbolism into the dramatic version as I could, but the trouble is that that yeah, that would slow down the story. If I, if we put all if we if we try to get all the symbolism in there. Uh, yeah, and, as well, and especially if you explained it. I hate it when they do that. Yeah. This was done, by the way, uh, are we still there? Yeah, yeah, I was going to add, uh, yeah. Lamed is also uh, is not just used for an ox goat. It's also um, used for the um, learning stick that teachers have. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this yeah. Is an, uh, an, ox be, an ox being either the actual animal or a recalcitrant <laughs> student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, actually, yeah. though, I thought, you know, I, I thought about the killing, the killing of 600 Philistines. Uh, there has to be uh, something, and of course, I naturally a little bit influence. I think Shamgar influences Samson, but uh, then on the other hand, Samson got me to thinking, well, how can how can Shamgar kill 600 Philistines with his ox goat in a realistic manner? And, and right. then you know we got thinking that 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 that, that uh, the the business of the grain and the Philistines were I, I you know I went into Phoenician history uh, and and uh, and, the, and the the Philistines were they they were moving in uh, and and they were uh, causing causing the 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 Hebrews at that time were kind of weak after Joshua and as as um, as uh, Jael explains. They were really at that point. They were down to about three tribes. They'd uh, after Joshua, when Joshua supposedly, according to the way they got it, Joshua got everybody to uh, all the the the, the, the for briefly he got all the uh, twelve tribes to acknowledge uh, uh, Jehovah. But but then uh, um, you know very shortly on, uh, I know I know you know in in the book of Joshua they they, they talk about the tribe of Reuben goes off and builds a temple over there by the Jordan 
And you know very, very well that that's a temple to El. That's not a temple to Jehovah. And right. so Reuben was, yeah, Reuben was lost right there. And, and so here they were down to, down to just... The Levites are a supernumerary tribe anyway, so you got the they're down to they're down to just two tribes. Uh and and but they did surround they were they did surround Jerusalem. The Jebusites of course controlled uh whatever was whatever the Temple Mount was in those days. Now I'm postulating a uh, original temple of Enoch, uh sort of borrowing from Masonry a little bit there, but uh, I'm I'm postulating an original temple of Enoch uh and which was actually, um, we're calling it the Temple of Melchizedek, because, my gosh, Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem, so, you know, why couldn't he have a temple? Mm-hmm. And if he did, it was probably like the Kaaba, you know, it was probably a big square building with, where everybody worshipped their own little gods, and they probably had an Asherah uh, in the center of it, you know, and it probably, so that's all, that's all reasonable. But the Jebusites controlled it at that time. But... Uh, you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, you know, the one thing I noticed in in reviewing the Book of Judges is that it's 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 one of those books that's, you know, the way it's written, it's it's history and it's also a polemic from the point of view of the Levite priesthood about it basically, well, every time something bad happens to the tribes of Israel, it's because they went off whoring after foreign gods and intermarrying with the Canaanites and the Philistines and, and 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 whoever. And whenever anything good happens, it's because they cried out to Yahweh and, and, and came back to the worship of the one true God. And that's just like over and over and over again through the whole book. And it's and it's yeah. and that's not the only book that's like that. So the, so this is telling you this is telling you that, that those you know, there was a certain faction, you know, the Levites and, and some other people we'd probably call ultra-Orthodox today who were dragging the Israelites along by their no, by their noses trying to get them to do what they wanted. And it's very much like a lot of the rank and file was just like, who are you kidding me? Who, who, who are you kidding? Look at, the, look at the Philistines. They have as many gods as there are stars in the sky, and they're filthy rich. And they have fun with their lives. Now, forget it. I'm going over there. Yeah. And, um, well, they even had uh, my uh, brother Solomon. Do you remember? Do you remember that 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 episode about that young priest that 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 one of the one of the judges had this young priest in his employ, and and, got, and he made an idol. And, yeah, and, and uh, the was stolen by the I think the Moabites, and they said, "No, we're keeping this god that you carved." <laughs> it was carved by a Levite. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. remember that story vaguely. I haven't read it in years. Um, but but before we veer off too much, because some important things were mentioned, um, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is identified with Jebus, or the city of the Jebusites. And the interesting thing is you'll, meet it, you'll read in the end of the book of Judges of, a, of a, a king of that area named Adonizedek. Now, Adonizedek was um, more than likely a successor to Melchizedek because in the book of Jasher, they actually refer to Melchizedek as Adonizedek, which means the king of Jupiter or the lord of Jupiter because Zedek was also another name for Jupiter. And the, um, the, the, uh, the Canaanites were... Um, Segmented into 
seven tribes at this time, of which the Jebusites were one, probably associated with Jupiter. And the, um, the Israelites were 12 or 13, which corresponds to the Zodiac. So we have something interesting going on there with uh, something centering maybe on the planets in Salem corresponding to the seven days of the week. And then the, uh, the Israelites were, were doing something more with the Zodiac and um, the year. So I, I don't want to miss that because I think that's an important point. Well, in the longer now, in the longer version of this uh, Shamgar, I think one of the one of the things that uh, Bezek, Bezek the parasite with a, with with no thumbs and no big toes is actually a character in the Book of Judges. He was a king. He was a, he was a king of the of the parasites, uh, and and they had his toes. And well, they, he wasn't the only one. They they cut off uh, about fifty fifty uh, different sheks. Uh, and well, you know, a king. What was a king among the among the inland tribes of, of Canaan? A king was 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 a sheik that had was, that had about um, uh, yeah, maybe maybe five hundred tents five hundred tents under him. You would say that that's a king. Uh, but uh, but anyway, Bezek. Uh, um, um, you know, I made him the prophet because Bezek. Uh, according to the way we worked it out, he became a prophet because he, he the Ark of the Covenant, when it, on a sunny day, of course, hit him with a bolt and and turned his put a white streak in his hair and a scar on his forehead, and he went crazy, and but he survived, and so they yeah, they, they, they yeah they they so they made him <laughs> as but then there was another thing too that I didn't mention in the story because it would have slowed the story down, Mizek. Had had studied over at the Temple of Melkart in Tyre, and he knew how to use the Urim and the Thummim. Now Moses, if you recall, in in, uh, in Joshua, and Moses has gave the Urim and the Thummim, the two divinatory stones, uh, to the Levites. But uh, we're not sure that they knew how to use them. But Bezek, he's he's been he, he's he's uh, come from at one time uh, spent some time in the in the temple of Melkart, so he knows how to actually use those stones, and in other words, how to how to do a geomatic horoscope. And they don't, and so this gives him a lot of power. That that was uh, another one of that. I didn't want to I didn't want to get into that because I would have slowed the story down. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of good little things, and I, and I uh, know the rest, and I can't wait to, to see it because you really, you, you really capture the gore of the Book of Judges in this story without um, without having to tell twenty stories. You just really, uh, you really encapsulate um, what the time of the Book of Judges was about, what their morality was, how they treated each other. You, you really capture a lot, and it's going to be really exciting for people to see this. One thing I wanted to point out, though, I mean, I really, the, the, the book of Judges, as you read it, uh, most people don't read it. I mean, very, very few. And, I've, and very, I think very few fundamental Christians have read the book of Judges because I don't, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's not, not a pleasant, unless you're, just, unless you're just looking for a catalog of atrocities, it's not a pleasant book to read. And, and so what I wanted to do, though, is to, is to have at least say some some good things about the Hebrews because let's face it we do owe uh, the whole concept of of 
free men living under under God's law is was was from them, because frankly, uh, the rest of the Canaanites you had petty kings who were absolute monarchs, and they, the the people themselves had no rights, and and you know they they couldn't look a king in the eye. They had to they had to you know grovel on the ground, and 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 uh, there was over in Phoenicia, yeah, they were more they were more. Uh, well, I hate to use the word democratic, but they they were more uh, they they were freer people because they were more civilized. But but the, the inland Canaanites were not. You know, they had a lot of a lot of like Shangar said. You know, they they could use a little righteousness, and and I wanted to point that out because I don't want to be I don't want uh, people to think that we were we were we were we are you know we against the, the Hebrews because they gave the world a great gift. They didn't want to give it, but they did. <laughs> and, and the great gift was yeah. freedom under God's law. So did that come across, by the way? Did you guys get that? Yeah, I think you see uh, you see people lending their ideas to each other, and um, you, you get uh, – you, you do. You, you peer into what, what's good about the one God, how it represents unity in your story, and um, – you also get the logic of seeing the universe divided in facets where there's multiple gods, and that makes sense, too, when you want to pull on a different aspect yeah. of the universe. It's kind of like the Tree of Life. There's ten different ones, to, ten different aspects to pull on, and the, the Canaanite gods really, they really encapsulate um, those energies as individual um, energy forms that you can pull on. But, um, you know, then you got your Kether, your Central, and everything's kind of pulled together where um, you can start seeing everything as part of one big universe and one big divine source bringing, uh, bringing all this uh, neat different forms of energy that we can look at. Kind of like uh, you take the rainbow, you mix it all together, you get your white light, but uh, you still have seven beautiful colors to look at uh, before you mix those colors together. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that one of the things that we're – Pointing out here, uh, or trying to, I'm trying to see if we can't get across in this in the Shamgar thing, is that that uh, that there should be a balance. There should be a balance between uh, the male and the female in the in the sense of of, of God. Like like one uh, Bezek says uh, that father, mother, son, daughter, all are one, uh, and then Shamgar says. Uh, uh, yes, uh, the one God has four faces, and, and this this is really the concept of the tetragrammaton. But but it uh, uh, and we're trying to you know try to get this across that that yeah, a patriarchal an entirely patriarchal God is not a good idea. But then on the other hand, you can't have like uh, for for the for most people now now as far as the as, as, as us as musicians are concerned, I think we can have a pantheon because we know they're all aspects of one God anyway. We're, we're magicians are sophisticated and 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 educated and, and and wise enough. Hopefully, hopefully some of them I think are children, but I mean you know. But but those of us who yeah yeah we but we we try we think of ourselves as being sophisticated enough to handle that kind of pantheism. Useful, useful pantheism, uh, but under but under a general uh, sense of common decency and common morality. But but for for common people, perhaps this is not 
pantheism is probably not a good idea. And and, uh, and I don't know, the Indians, the, the Hindus seem to be work, finally working it out, I guess. Maybe they are. I don't know. There's still some complaints about uh, inequities and, and stuff in that area. But, uh, you know, that they, I think we should be honest enough and to know, to, to, to really, to, to uh, you know, to, to give credit for the, the great... Um, for the great uh, gift that, 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 uh, that the Jewish people have given us, uh, as reluctant as they were to give it to us, I mean, but they did, you know. Anyway, and 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 we we should we should really be aware of that. Uh, and and uh, uh, but but uh, on the other hand, um, when the new covenant comes around, uh, then then it, I think it was time, you know, when the Roman Empire. Uh, was ruling the whole world. It was time, perhaps, to to have a new covenant. So I I, I have some sympathy for the Christian position too. Um, yeah, uh, th- th- that bring, that brings up another thing to consider here. This is what were we talking about? 1240 BC. Okay, that was roughly the same time. That was then, you know, not too far off from the Trojan War. So you can you can remember how the you remember how the Greeks behaved, the Greeks and Trojans behaved in the Iliad. It's really kind of similar to this, and 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 how yeah. the gods were, and then you know, and then later on along along comes uh, Anaxagoras, one of the first uh, pre-Socratic philosophers whose writings have survived, and he's one of the first ones to step up and go, look. I know everybody. I know everybody reveres Homer and Hesiod as our as our birthright legacy and, and the source of our religion. But frankly, those gods are hooligans and not worthy of worship. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they didn't yeah, they didn't yeah. behead him they didn't behead him in the town square. And so there's this conflict <laughs> there's yeah. this really con- conflict between or, or you know, you have to do when looking at any of this literature, you have to do what you were just doing. Go in and treat it go in and treat it you know, symbolically, and look look at it as you know, archetypes interacting and so forth, and get and and get a worthwhile message out of it. You know, while while not while not taking and while not taking a, a too strong a position one way or another, because you know, those those, pe- those people were under those people were in a different stage of development, and they were under pressures that. We can hardly imagine, you know, in the the right around 1200 BC. I mean, things just really went, things just completely went sour all over the Mediterranean. And, and there's also um, a push pull that happens whenever um, people develop. Um, nothing is static as situations uh, as civilizations evolve. Uh, you, you have the Phoenicians; they're living by the seashore and. Whenever you have a strong empire, they, they want to protect their um, their central spot. The, the sea is the most ideal place, or the river is the most ideal place for a civilization to develop. When you get um, a civilization that's a little further out from that, though, um, if they want to maintain themselves, uh, they become violent and bloody. We saw that with the um, a violent, bloody people not near any um, major rivers. So... Um, uh, they had more sacrifices. You know, if you want to get the water flowing, um, you kill people and you get the blood flowing. But um, you, you have uh, 
civilizations more like by the Indus River, um, the, the need for um, human sacrifice goes down because people aren't as angry. But we know um, back at this time, the people more inland, like the uh, Moabites right in front of the Israelites, performed uh, a human sacrifice. And we also saw that with uh, Jephthah. He um, sacrificed his own daughter. That's um, alluded to in the book of Judges. So uh, these tribes that are more inland, they don't have as much access to water, so they're a lot angrier, and um, they might have more rules that they impose, but it's um, so they can survive on these uh, lands that aren't quite as um, as giving. And uh, we also see something kind of neat. Um, I don't think most people are going to catch it, but Shamgar, um, the, the roads are in disarray when Shamgar was uh, over Israel. So what I think... Uh, what my guess with Shamgar is is that he was trying to b- bring some form of equality to Israel, um, maybe get the, the women to be more equal to the men because he would have had that from his Phoenician influence. Um, and, and we see uh, there's push-pull, but he's also trying to make the Canaanites equal to the Israelites because he's not an Israelite himself. So there's kind of a hint that he's trying to bring opposing factions together which is a common theme throughout um, civilizations evolving, is uh, try to get all these gods to get along under one roof or just reject all the gods that all the the powerful people are saying, let's just have one god who's superior to them all. So Shamgar, um, he probably laid the way unintentionally for his successor, Deborah, who doesn't speak too favorably of him by trying to promote that equality in Israel. Um, He has somebody else who's getting equal, but she's doing it on her terms. And I think we'll see a little bit more of Deborah later. Uh, we're going to see a little more of Deborah in the next uh, in the next episode of Shamgar, because uh, the way the way it works out, Deborah is uh, is just a young girl about ten ten years old uh, in Shamgar uh, in Shamgar's time, and she is one of these little infant Torabs, you know, the like uh, like uh, 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 Maud Debs. A little sister in Dune, you know. My brother is coming, Emperor. You know, <laughs> you know Deborah. Deborah. Well, Deborah was ferocious anyway. So, so uh, you know, she she knew we 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 were going to see a young a young child that uh, that uh, shows us the, the glimpse of, of of terror to come with Deborah, and and uh, so there. And also, too, uh, Jephthah's sacrifice uh, of his daughter, uh, that, that, uh, that, that is uh, going to be working the end of the second, uh, in the end of the second uh, Shamgar episode. Uh, also, Jael's. I think that everyone should read the book of, that's interested in Shamgar, if you're interested in Shamgar, read the book of Judges. I mean, it, it. I don't know. It, it, it's it's pretty gruesome, but 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 uh, you you will you you'll see in in there like uh, like Rufus says, there is the whole the whole origins of of, of what eventually became uh, you know came through in the Book of Kings and all the rest is 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 laid in the Book of Judges. It's it's the it's foundation the original of. Yep. It, it's the okay, original guys. Is there anything else that you guys would like to discuss on this before we wrap up? Well, I, I just think Deborah is really going to be a neat character because um, whenever civilization is going through change, we could look like when um, 
women were seeking their rights and African Americans were seeking their rights in our country, they weren't necessarily totally doing it together. So I think uh, what Deborah was doing is she was saying, well, you know, how is Deborah going to strengthen her own cause? She's going to say, well, yeah, uh, women have a place and they should be equal, but uh, those Canaanites are somebody else because she wants to make her position secure. So how is she going to do it? By not allowing Shamgar's promotion of Canaanite and Israelite equality come to pass. If she mocks that, then she strengthens her own position uh, as a woman leader in a patriarchal society. Well, you're right there. And, and of course, uh, Shamgar's ox code is eventually going to end up uh, thrust into the end of the sacred cedar tree up at Afaka. So that'll be the, the the final end of the of the next one, or at least the final end for Shamgar. And uh, right. so, so we have some. We have we have a we have a, a the second episode of Shamgar, which will be. Uh, I don't know when we'll have that ready to go, but but we're we're working on it. And uh, <laughs> and we we would like. We would like comments and, and insights and, and everything on Shamgar, of course, because Shamgar is is kind of a well. You, you, we can we can say that it's a it's a it's a work in pro, it, it's a spiritual work in progress, and and, uh, and the more we learn about Shamgar, both psychically and and and, uh, and scholarly pursuits and whatever, uh, the better Shamgar gets, and and uh, so. I, I hope everybody enjoyed our little time travel. Well, how'd you like the Shruti box as a time machine? <laughs> I loved it. That yeah, was that was fun great. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of cute. Okay, well next week, um, next week we're going to try to see if we can have another interesting guest. Uh, and and uh, and uh, so next week, uh, be sure and tune in. And let's have, like I said, let's have some comments on the website about Shamgar and, and uh, some some suggestions and whatever. Uh, you know, he's kind of our superhero, and uh, so our very own superhero. So so uh, let's uh, let's hear from you. And meanwhile, uh, thanks by the way for, to uh, Frater Solomon and Frater Opus for calling in, and giving us your thoughts, and we'll see you all again next week. And meanwhile, good magic. All right. Magic. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.